Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Heavenly Father, as we now turn to your word, would you make it sparkle for us and burn in our hearts? We ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, if I've not met you before, again, my name's Scott, and uh, we are in a special season as a church where we are becoming fully planted, um, and w- basically that means we're becoming fully self-sustaining financially and fully self-governing. For those of you who are new to our church, we're a church plant. We're not yet three years old, um, and so we've been depending on our mother churches who planted us for the past three years for governance and for uh, external support financially, and we're kind of moving out of the house at this point. Um, which is really, really exciting. And we've taken this season as an opportunity to talk about some really important stuff like money, um, like how we think about stewardship in general and what it means to govern the church. And this morning we're wrapping up uh, some things by meditating on the relationship between stewardship and the church. Um, so the last two weeks have been stewardship in the gospel, just what is the, the theology of stewardship that comes out of the Bible. And then last week we talked about money, now we're talking about the church. So for the majority of this sermon, um, I'm just going to apply the three main truths that we have talked about stewardship, which if you weren't here for the last two, it's okay, I'll repeat them, um, to the church. What does that mean that we are stewards of the church? Um, But before we do that, I want you to see that this is not a sneaky, random application of a theological idea. Um, Actually, there's a fundamental biblical connection between Eden and the local church. There's a direct tie, and there's a fundamental biblical connection between Adam and Eve and what they are created to do in the garden and what you are created to do in your local church. Amen. In other words, this isn't pastoral gymnastics to get you to serve and give more. <laughs> if that's a byproduct, awesome. Um, but this isn't sneaky. This is at the heart of the narrative of the Bible. So that's where I want to start. So let's go back to the beginning one last time. We spent a lot of time in Genesis over the past two weeks. Um, but if you would, would you flip to your Genesis 2 reading that Ben read? And man, didn't he crush those river names? Wow. I mean, have you ever heard those river names pronounced more eloquently? Well done, Ben. Um, When God created the world, this is an overlooked fact. God created the entire world, and it was really good. He created everything in it, but he only planted one garden in one particular specific place, and that was Eden. The world was not a garden. He created the world and he created one garden. So Genesis 1 focuses on the big sweeping picture of all of creation in the seven days of creation, and then you get this focused camera angle in Genesis 2 specifically on the garden. And it's really important. The garden of God was Eden. So let's read with me really quick. Look at verse 5 in Genesis 2. Are you guys there? If you're watching on the live stream, Feel free to flip with me to Genesis 2 if you have a Bible or you can look it up on the bulletin. Verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man 
to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Translation, this is uncultivated land. There's no farmer. Notice it pointed out. And also, there's no vegetation yet. There's no, the stuff is there that could produce a garden, but it wasn't a garden yet. It was uncultivated. Verse 7, then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. That's one of the most just amazing verses in the whole world, but the thing I want to point out is now we have a farmer. He's formed a man. Verse 8, then what does he do? And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put his farmer whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we have a garden. Now we have a steward gardener. So at creation, you have a whole world that is really good, but it's uncultivated. Like an untamed wilderness that's ruled more by chaos than order, if you will except for one place, Eden. Eden was a place of order in a chaotic world. It was a place of divine cultivation in the midst of a wilderness. The phrase divine cultivation sounds really pretentious, sounds like something you would tweet, but it's a good phrase, all right? Not only that, Eden is the place of life of divine life. It's the place of fruit bearing in the world. The tree of life is in the garden, right? Out of the garden flow the rivers of life. All those rivers are coming out of Eden, meaning Eden is like a fountainhead, and out of Eden are four rivers that are going to the rest of the world. And what's in all the rivers? Did you catch it? Treasure. (laughs) Isn't that wild? Some beautiful paintings in the 19th century have Eden, and then in the the river, there are all these gems and stones. That's right in Genesis. So it's like a fountainhead of life that's springing out into the rest of the world. And it was in that garden that God gave Adam and Eve dominion as stewards over that, that place. What was their job? Remember, first, to work and keep it, which means to preserve it, to keep it going, to protect it, protect the order in the midst of the chaos, and second, to grow it to be fruitful and multiply in that space. In other words, God gave Adam and Eve the privilege of taking that one cultivated place and expanding the cultivation of Eden throughout the rest of the world. That was their privilege. That was their joy. God could have farmed the whole earth, but he didn't. He planted one garden, and then he said to Adam and Eve, you get the joy of taking this to the rest of the world. This is like when Marissa and I moved into our new house and all of our stuff was disheveled and in boxes and it was terrifying and our house was terrifying. The first thing we did was we cleaned our living room and we set up a chair and a couch so we had somewhere to sit, right? And then everything else in all the other rooms was still in boxes and it was insane. And our process was slowly fighting back against the chaos in each room until slowly we had expanded the Cunningham order throughout the rest of the house. And at this point, we've lived there for three years, there are only certain spaces in our basement and certain closet that are still ruled by chaos. 
but one day we will reign over our home. <laughs> it's exactly like that. Eden was a place of order that was meant to expand over chaos. Eden was a place of life, which was meant to be fruit-bearing throughout the rest of the world. And Adam and Eve, as stewards, were privileged, I hope you see how fun that is, that they got to be a part of that expansion. Now, what happened at the fall? Adam and Eve allowed a snake, which in the ancient Near East represented chaos, to come into the place of order and mess things up. And they listened to it. This would be like if Marissa and I were unpacking our boxes, we allowed someone to come into our house and just start flipping over boxes. Coming back into the rooms that we had cleaned, flipping chairs, smashing glasses, and making it chaos again. That is what is happening in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve listen to the chaos, they rebel against the order of God, and then tragically, everything is lost. And what happens to Adam and Eve as a result of their sin? They get expelled from the specific place of the garden out into the wilderness where they bleed and sweat to try to bring stuff out of the ground. Where they try to tame the untamable, both in the world and in their souls. Now, the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of the Bible is that God in his mercy did not leave Adam and Eve or Adam and Eve's children in chaos and death. Praise God. God came after his people, and specifically, he chose the people of Israel to be another beachhead of order and life in the middle of a chaotic world. And in the midst of Israel, he planted a garden. And that garden was the temple. The temple was the garden of God. The temple is Eden 2.0. And I don't have the time to go into it all, but Eden was intentionally designed to feel like Eden. There was water in it. There was a tree in it. Along the walls, there was pomegranates and fruit because it was meant to feel like Eden. Like Eden, it was where God was. It's where he walked. It's where you could find him. It was uniquely ordered. That's why everything in the Old Testament is so focused on the order of the temple because it is ordered in a chaotic world. And it was a place of divine life. Guess what vision Ezekiel has of what comes out of the temple and into the rest of the world that bears fruit? A river, right? That's Eden imagery, now it's the temple. And if the temple was another Eden, guess what the priests were described like? Gardeners. Steward gardeners. In the book of Numbers, I don't have time to go into it, there's a section in Numbers 18 that specifically uses the same exact verbs to work and keep in describing what the priests are to do with the temple. Guard the temple. Don't let anybody come in and mess this up and keep it, till it. In fact, the word work that it says in Genesis 2, and God made, planted the man to work and keep the garden, that word work in Hebrew is where we get the verb minister from. So it's literally, God tells Adam to minister to the garden, and God tells priests to minister and guard in the temple, if you see the back and forth. Their job was to do that. Their job was also to expand. One of the things that God promises to Abraham from day one and to all Israel is that they are to multiply over the earth. Until the day 
The glory of the Lord isn't just contained in the temple, but from the temple it flows out over all the earth like water covers the sea. Hallelujah. You guys still with me? That was a lot. Big thing is, Eden is like the temple, temple's like Eden. Okay, here's where it gets amazing. Just as the Bible links the temple to Eden, so the Bible links the temple to the church. Directly, explicitly, all over the place. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple? Do you hear what Ian said? Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you're God's field. You're his building. And that seemed to me my whole life like a really weird mixed metaphor. How can you be a building and a field at the same time? But think about what we just talked about. You're the temple. You're also the garden. What does this mean? The church is the beachhead of order in a chaotic world. Amen? The church is the place of divine presence, divine cultivation, and beauty. In the church, we have the tree of life, which is what? The cross. In the church, we have fountainheads of living spring water, which is what? The Holy Spirit. I don't... (laughs) I didn't hear what you said up there. (laughs) We are that place. And what is the mission of the church? To expand, right? To fight back against the chaos, to cultivate God's beautiful creation, to fulfill the mandate that we were given at the beginning until the day the glory of the Lord fills the earth as waters cover the sea. This is why Jesus says, let me tell you what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like a tiny little seed. It's really small at the beginning, but it grows and it grows and it grows until it covers everything and birds come and find shelter in its branches. The church is the garden of God. And if that's true, then what are you? You are a steward gardener priest. You are, not just me, you are. Yours is the privilege of protecting the garden. Yours is the task of stomping snakes when evil and anything that would seek to corrupt and destroy the creatures of God tries to come into our midst and flip boxes. Amen? We don't let that happen. That's our job. Yours is also the privilege of expanding the garden of growing, of being fruitful and multiplying. Yours is the task of bearing fruit. Jesus is the vine, the cross is the tree of life. We abide in him and we grow like the mustard seed. Okay, that was a lot. Are you guys still with me? It's really beautiful, but I think it's really important in order to make that connection so this doesn't seem flippant. Those are beautiful theological truths, but we cannot let them remain theological ideas. Everything we've discussed in the past three weeks about stewardship means nothing if it doesn't actually hit the ground somewhere, if if it isn't tangibly applicable. There always comes a point in Christian theology that theology incarnates. This is what makes Christian theology Christian. God himself is not just an idea, if you are new to the Christian faith. God took on flesh and incarnated. Amen? Amen? 
And so it is with what we believe. All theology, at some point, takes on flesh. And more often than not, more often than not, the place where that happens is in and through the local church. And so now is a good time to remind ourselves of a critical sacramental truth. If you don't know what the word sacramental truth or the word sacramental means, don't worry about it. But this is what it means to be sacramental. You cannot relate to Jesus apart from relating to the church, and you can't relate to the church without relating to your local church. Let me say that one more time. You cannot relate to Jesus apart from relating to the church, and you can't relate to the church without relating to your local church. Let me say what I mean by that. I hear a lot of people say sometimes, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. Or, I submit to Jesus, but I don't submit to anybody else. And certainly not the church. Brothers and sisters, that's not possible. That's an oxymoron. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. Amen? How could you love someone without loving their body? How could you submit to someone only in theory? Right? Jesus and God chose to sacramentally bind himself to the church. So you cannot relate to him apart from the church, the one holy Catholic apostolic church. But if we're not careful, that can still be theoretical because you can get there studying a book in a room by yourself and be like, that's awesome, I believe in that. Which is why the next qualifier is crucial. You cannot love the church, his body, without loving your actual local tangible congregation, i.e. the people who are around you right now. Look around you just for a second. You can't love God and not love these people. First John says, that's impossible. He literally says, you can't say, if you say I love God but you hate your brother, when he uses that word he means like brother in faith, you can't do that. That's an oxymoron. He also says, you can't Say the love of God abides in you if you withhold your wealth from someone who is in need. That's an oxymoron. You can't do it. So you can't love Jesus and not love the church. You can't love the church and not love your local church. We have to be hyper vigilant to make that connection. Otherwise, our faith will be malnourished and unincarnate. And it will never fully bear fruit in our life because what we believe is not taking on flesh. Okay, how does the theology of stewardship incarnate? Where and how does it take on flesh? Three points, and they go with the three points of stewardship. Here they are. Number one, Christ's church is our garden. Amen? Christ church Madison is our garden. This is our garden. This is our 40 acres. Paul says about the Corinthian church, God planted it, right? They did some stuff to it, but God planted it and God caused the growth. Well, God planted this church. He caused it to grow. It's his. He rules over it. He's the head of it. And yet, he's given us dominion over it and dominion in this city in the beautiful way that dominion, that word can be scary, 
if you're not familiar with the Bible, but it's a beautiful word. It means responsibility, stewardly ownership. And that means that you are a steward in the garden. So listen, I am not the only steward in this church. I am a steward, but I'm not the only one. You all are stewards. I have a unique vocational role as a priest in this church, but what does the New Testament say? Everybody's a priest. So you can't just say, you got it, Scott. I'm so glad you're the steward of this church. That's great. No, we all are stewards. Amen? So I think a crucial part of our discipleship journey is the shift from church consumers to church stewards. And this really could preach, but I'm only going to spend a second on it. The majority of American churchgoers, you've heard this before, it's kind of a, you know, a whipping boy. It's an easy target, but it's just true. A lot of us function and relate to church like a consumer, but the Bible and the Lord Jesus would have us relate to it as a steward. And the difference is profound. Consumers come to be entertained. They come to assess the product of the church. They think, if I feel like it, I'll attend or participate, but I'm here to see if I like the music, if I like the preaching, if the preacher's weird, uh, if I like the community, you know, I'm going to eye everybody out, see if there's anybody who would kind of, I want to add to my clan. You look at the pastor, you think, your job is to do all this stuff. Your job is to keep me here, to entertain me, right? And if I don't like it, if I don't feel like it, I'm out. I'll take my business elsewhere. And a consumer's thinking, now, even if I like it and I give my time and my money, I'm doing that as a charity. I'm being kind but it's not because I have any relational responsibility to this community. It's just me being generous to you. Stewards are utterly different, right? Stewards feel a divine sense of dignity and humility and responsibility and obligation. They aren't constantly assessing if they like it or not. Stewards are constantly seeking ways to preserve and grow the garden. Amen? So listen, on July 1st, and again, if you're here for the first time, we've, we'll, we'll have more conversation this afternoon about what this legal transition means, but they're going to be a legal transition. We're going to become our own 501c3. We're going to become all this stuff. But my prayer is that our church doesn't just go a legal transition, that we undergo a heart transition. Amen? Where we shift from feeling like consumers and attenders to I am a steward in God's holy church. And this is my garden. This is the local application of this for me. And my prayer is, if you go to another church or if you move from here and you go to another church, that you will take that with you. The point of this is not for you to be attached to Christ Church Madison forever. We want to disciple Christians. We want to make disciples who go to another church and immediately show up and say, I'm here as a steward. So this isn't just about Christ Church. It's about everything. Okay. As priest stewards, you're a steward. This is, Christ, this is your garden. What's our calling? Here's your second point. And you know what I'm going to say. We are called to work and keep Christ Church's garden. We are called to work and keep Christ Church's garden. And remember what that means. It means preserving. To work, as I've said, means literally to serve, to water the garden, to do all those things. To serve, to, to keep means to guard it, to protect it from chaos. Now, what did this look like for Israel with their garden, the temple? It meant that there were some people who vocationally were priest stewards in the temple, like priests and Levites, 
but the entire nation supported and kept and maintained and worked and kept that garden. People were giving to it. They were giving their time and their craftsmanship to it. The only reason the temple exists is because people were gifted to make it and donate the resources. Everybody was working and tilling the garden. And so it is with us. If you're a consumer, you're not going to want to serve or minister in the garden. You're just not going to want to do it. Someone reaches out to ask you to serve, it's going to feel like an inconvenience. Like, I don't want to do that. But if, a, if you're a steward, you're going to be overjoyed, right? You're going to be thinking, what can I offer? How can I help to cultivate God's garden? Consumers are looking for gardens they like to eat the fruit that's already ripe. Stewards are looking for how they can help bear fruit. And this is part of why I love a theology of stewardship is because it's about everything. It's not just about money. It's about all the things. And this is so significant for us because we will only flourish as a church, as a young church that's growing, if we all pitch in together as stewards. So it's not just up to the staff. We, we want this to be a full kingdom of priests and a holy nation, which is what the Bible calls us. So can I challenge you to dive in in the upcoming year? Um, if you have been here for years, if you are here for a first Sunday, now is the time, it's an amazing time to dive in, to pick up a rake and a hoe, to get dirt under your fingernails. Don't you love gardening in the spring in Wisconsin when the soil is black and things happen? That's happening right now. We need your help. We need the whole church to function as stewards to work and keep this garden. Amen? So this isn't just about money, but of course it also includes money. The church is the garden of God, flourishes through the generosity of stewards. This was true in the Old Testament. This was true for Jesus and his disciples. It was true in the early church, very much so, and it is true today. Um, I heard Tim Keller say once that money flows effortlessly to that which is its God, which is just a great phrase. Money flows effortlessly to that which is its God. And I would add, we give effortlessly and invest freely in those things in which we love and those things in which we feel responsibility. Sacrificial generosity comes naturally to a steward. It is a serious obstacle to a consumer. Let me give you an example. I have a pastor friend who used to minister in Philadelphia, and one Sunday after he was giving a sermon on money and giving or something like that, some guy came up to him afterwards who was really mad that he was talking about money and talking about this too much and the church shouldn't talk about money and blah, 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 blah. And my friend knew that this guy was a massive, raging Philadelphia Eagles fan. And so he said, um, you're an, e an Eagles season ticket holder, right? <laughs> and the guy was like, yeah, you know, like obviously. Um, and he said, and I'm assuming that that costs a lot of money. And he was like, you know, what are you trying to say, you know? Didn't want to say how much it cost, didn't ask. But then he said, and you've been a season ticket holder your whole life, correct? The guy said, yes. And like kind of started to figure out where he was going. Then he said, have you ever complained about how much your Eagles season ticket costs? He said, no. And then he said, would there ever be a point because I'm assuming they've raised the price year to year. He said, well, yeah. Would there ever be a point where they would raise it so much that you would stop paying for a Philadelphia Eagles season ticket? And he paused and said, no. Yeah, checkmate. 
things I wish I would have said in the, so many conversations, right? Like, oh, who could be that eloquent off the top? Money flows effortlessly to that which is its God. You have something in your life that you don't care about the price. You are chalking it up to pay for it because you love it. Where your treasure is, the heart is also, right? A steward gives effortlessly, gives freely. So, of course, this is part of what it means to be a part of the church. And in this next season where we are beginning to be accountable for our own budget fully, we have a great opportunity to grow into our financial stewardship. Amen? Two things I want to say about giving. I talked a lot about money last week just in general, but I want to say two specific things about giving in this church. First, a word about tithing. Tithing if you're not familiar with it, is the Old Testament principle that you give 10% of your income and whatever you make to God and to the church. Um, From the time I was a toddler, my parents taught me to tithe and I have not departed from it. When I was a little kid, when I was like four, my parents used to take me to church and they used to give me a dollar or two to just practice giving. And they instilled in me a love of tithing and of giving to the church and I'm so thankful for that. It's a great and beautiful practice. If you tithe faithfully, that is phenomenal you are giving above and beyond the vast majority of American Christians, and I commend you for it. But tithing is not a Christian law. It was part of the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament legal system, but that part of the legal system is not carried over into the New Testament. The spirit of the law is carried over into the New Testament, that we have, what we have as gods, everything we talked about last week, that we're to give generously and sacrificially to the poor, to the mission of the church, but the letter of the law is not. And this is for several reasons. On the one hand, one of the reasons it's not brought into the New Testament, I think, is because God loves a cheerful giver. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, when he's discussing these things, he says, quote, the point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Therefore, you recognize that language that we talked about last week. Then he says this, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And this is so consistent with the New Testament. Christ does not tax his citizens to death. The devil taxes his citizens to death. Christ does not. When you read the Apostle Paul and you read the teachings of Jesus, Paul is bending over backwards to make sure no one can ever say, you just are in it for the money and you force me to give money. There is never coercion in the kingdom of God to giving. Amen? There never, ever is coercion. Stuff that we read today, stuff in 2 Corinthians, it just all bears that out. God is inviting you to invest in the kingdom, and to step into freedom through the renunciation of our worship of mammon. Amen? So there's no letter of the law, even if the spirit of the law of Christ remains. But there's another reason I think that that's true as well. There's no tithing law, because in our sin, we hide behind laws like crutches. And in the gospel, Jesus removes crutches. For example, Jesus shows in the Sermon on the Mount how we love to take Old Testament laws and use them legalistically to check off a box so that we can do other whatever else we want to do. So, for instance, oh, I just don't have to commit adultery. Okay, I won't do that 
specifically, but I'll fill my mind with junk and porn and do everything else, but I'm good because I didn't commit adultery. That's the way that people thought in Jesus' day. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, no, your heart matters too. Everything matters. Your eyes count. Your heart counts. Likewise, I think tithing can be a crutch that we can hide behind. Sadly, most Christians never get that close, but for those who do, we think, awesome, I gave 10%, I'm good. It's all done. My generosity quota has been met. The rest is for me. That's not a stewardship thought. You see that? That's not a steward thinking. That's not informed by the sweet theology of the heart that we talked about last week. Amen? So 10% is a great principle. If you've never given before or if you've never given consistently, it's an awesome place to start. Um, But it's a minimalistic principle. Jesus and the gospel is maximalist. Second thing I want to say about tithing and giving is that I have never known nor will ever known what you give in our church. So this is between you and God. It's not between you and me. And that's as it should be. This is between you and your heart praying with God about your role as a steward. So number one, Christ's church is our garden. Number two, we're called to work and keep Christ's church with our gifts, our time, our money. And finally, here's the third and final point. We are called to be fruitful and multiply Christ's church. We are called to be fruitful and multiply Christ's church. And this is where it gets so exciting. This has been such a, a gift to me is dwelling on this point. Remember, Adam and Eve weren't just meant to maintain the garden. They were meant to expand it. Like Marissa and I in our home, they were meant to spread the order and beauty of God into the chaos. They were meant to till and farm and scatter seed so the garden could grow. And so it is for us. Christ Church Madison is almost three years old. We have tasted so much beautiful fruit. Amen. God has literally planted this church. It did not exist three years ago. And we have seen miracles happen in this community. We praise God for that. But there's a lot of uncultivated land, right? There's a lot of untilled earth. Our charge is to grow this. And the way this has been so freeing for me is this is not growth for vainglory's sake. This is not growth for greed's sake. This is not growth because we live in a crazy capitalist society that is all about growth all the time. We're not borrowing this from the culture. I think some churches do. But what's been a gift for me is seeing in the scriptures that our job is to bear fruit, and that fruit bearing can look whatever way it does, but we are burying our talent if we think we're good, let's just maintain this and this little posse right now. No, God wants us to be fruitful, amen? This is living into our our humanity. This is living into our office as steward to bear fruit and multiply, and that is what is ahead of us as a church for the next 100, 200, thousand years. Maybe we'll be around in the year 3000. How awesome would that be? Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? What parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.